Good evening and welcome to Lesson 7. We're going to go over Hosea and Micah, both contemporary prophets with uh, the prophet Isaiah this week. And this will prepare us to get into Isaiah next week. Uh, up on the board, I have, uh, there are four kings of Judah here, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in their respective B.C. dates, as you can see. Uzziah and Jotham uh, have some weird overlap because Jotham was co-regent for about, uh, you know, f five years until he really took over um, when Uzziah was older. And then over on this side, you have Israel's king, Jeroboam II, who Amos prophesied uh, for, and he reigned there for 50 years, and then there were six weak kings before they fell to Assyria in 722. So that's kind of how the timelines are adding up here. You can see um, during a big chunk of this, there's just one, uh, you know, king in Israel, and then these six weak kings. Now, Hosea and Micah prophesy at about the same time. Micah is prophesying uh, to both Israel and Judah, but he lives in Judah. Uh, Hosea is prophesying to uh, mainly Israel and lives in Israel. <clears throat> um, Hosea is going to be interesting because his, his book is scandalous, to say the least. Um, first couple of chapters, but you can't get mad at me for talking about it because it's in the Bible, okay? Um, both of these books are going to prepare us for Isaiah. Simply put, uh, Isaiah is a different book altogether than most of the prophets. Um, Hosea and Micah are going to have the same three-part prophetic message, and Isaiah will have that, but Isaiah just deals with so much more um, messianic prophecy. Uh, a bunch of Isaiah will just be talking about visions of the Messiah that he sees. I Isaiah is going to have a lot more... Um, Well, simply put, Isaiah was called the fifth gospel for a while uh, because of how much of Jesus it had in it before he was even here. So we're going to use these two books to talk about the time frame so that next week we could just focus on Isaiah and focus on almost what's more unique to Isaiah, what makes Isaiah different than these other books. So let's uh, start off with Hosea. And uh, Hosea is right in that chair of your notes. Hosea, as I said before, is a prophet to Israel. And there's going to be a very interesting way that God speaks to him about Israel's sin condition. If you've got a Bible and want to turn to the book of Hosea, um, you can. If not, I'm going to read the intro here. So in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, 
and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So what I've written on the board, basically. So he had a long uh, prophetic career. Now, the book starts kind of weird because it's almost like uh, he's looking back and it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife, and I'm reading from the ESV. Get mad at that translation committee, not me. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Um, it's a very archaic way of talking, but it's basically telling Hosea, uh, go marry a prostitute, have children by her, because the whole land acts like a prostitute towards me. This is God criticizing the kingdom of Israel and telling Hosea, go do what my people are doing. You, you go live out a sermon against them. And the Lord, uh, so uh, verse 3, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, I guess is how it's pronounced, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again. Now notice it does not say here necessarily that it's his child, just that she conceived again. And bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, or Lo Ruhama. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. That's important to remember. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Does not say it's Hosea's son, by the way. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, or lo ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So, you can see that um, the scandal of Hosea's marriage was supposed to be like he, his family was a living sermon against the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and their spiritual state. They had left the Lord, and just like that, it looks like uh, Hosea's wife also left him. You notice that the first child says was Hosea's, the, the second and third, the Bible does not say they were Hosea's child. So some commentaries uh, believe that what happened is that this wife of his went back to her old profession and just realized, well, Hosea will take care of them because he's my husband. Well, and... Do you, do you, I mean... That just seems kind of far-fetched to me. I, I just, I think 
the smart people are too smart for themselves that are interpreting this stuff. Could be. Could be. Um, but there, there is a little bit of a hint of that um, in chapter 3. If you turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. Now, we don't know if the children are necessarily that way, but we do know in chapter 3, God gives him a second command. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley and said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. And so if that is a second transaction where he rebuys his wife and says, You cannot keep living this way then some commentaries think that's what the, the second and third child were not his. They could have been his, and but we do know in chapter 3, Hosea as a sermon is supposed to go and buy back his wife from her. And that's Gomer he's talking about? Gomer, yes. And so, like I said, it's in the Bible. And you look at this and you go... You know, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, I know one that I would not want to be. You know, I wouldn't mind being Elijah or Amos. I wouldn't want to be Jonah either. But Hosea, Ezekiel either. Hosea and Ezekiel, no. You know. Jeremiah? Jeremiah's all right. I'd rather just be John. Okay. Yeah. So you can see that um, the first part of the outline of Hosea on this says a questionable marriage as an illustration. Uh, commentaries argue, did, you know, they said, because he's kind of looking back at it, it sounds like when the word of the Lord first came to Hosea, he did this. And they say, you know, was this woman already in that profession or did she just become unfaithful? That, that doesn't matter. The point is, his relationship and his family were supposed to be an illustration of the spiritual state of Israel, the northern kingdom. They were not being faithful to the Lord. Do you remember that I told you that in the north and in the south of Israel they set up two cows? And they were supposed to keep the people of Israel from going across the border to the temple. And they said, these are the God of Israel, but they're, they're his cows. You know, they're, they're his form. They were an idol of him. And God says that is not acceptable. And then um, under other kings, they began to import the Asherah and Baal and worship foreign gods. And so... Their spiritual life is one of spiritual, uh, as the Bible says, harlotry or whoredom. They are unfaithful to their spiritual husband, the Lord. And um, there are other prophets that, that talk about this theme that Israel's spiritual life is adulterous, of an, as an adulteress, uh, adulterous. And so uh, Hosea's ministry you know, the first couple of chapters is, is shocking, but it's 
it's an illustration of what Israel is doing. So um, look, look at chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. This is a poem. Say to your brothers. And so he's supposed to go like, say this message to all his countrymen. You are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. And so he goes through this long, I'm not going to read it, you can read it, very graphic poem of how she, I'm going to make a couple of quotes that are more PG-13. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You see what God is doing with this illustration. And it's very graphic, but he's saying, I, you know, just like a husband brings home the bacon, but she's frying it up for another God. And so this um, poem ends at verse 11. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. Remember, Baal was supposed to be a sky god and make the rain and the agriculture would grow. So she's, she's taking all the blessings of the Lord, Israel is, and saying, look what Baal's given me. So God's like, okay, if you think those are from Baal, I'm not paying the bills anymore. So this, um, this poem talking about Israel's spiritual state um, it's, it's just there as an illustration. Now, Hosea lived it out. The first three chapters are an illustration. This is how bad Israel is. And so, the first three chapters are, we'll say they're descriptive. Descriptive. When you realize how bad Israel is, the book's going to change. The, the book goes in chapter 4 in a different direction completely. So chapter, forward, chap, sorry, chapter 4 starts with this, Hear the word of the Lord, O, ch o children of Israel, for the land has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. So... He's, he's saying almost the, the land is going to bring a lawsuit against its inhabitants. The Lord has a controversy. Right. The, the, oh, hold on. Yeah, sorry. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. For there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So he's bringing up this controversy, this lawsuit. And so you remember what I said, the prophets often act like a lawyer or a covenant mediator. And so after setting the tone in, verse, in chapters 1 through 3, now we have the message of the prophet. Remember chapters 1 through 3 are an illustration. Chapter 4 starts the message. It says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. So this idea of faithfulness or steadfast love is talking about devotion to God and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. 
They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you. By night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You've heard that verse a lot before. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's a very popular verse. But it's not just talking about knowledge. Sometimes we use it to talk about information. But it says, because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. So he's talking about the knowledge there is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Lord. The priests had forgotten the law, and the prophets are no longer speaking for the Lord. That is the knowledge they didn't have. It's not just talking about the education system. Sometimes that verse is taken into context, and here it's talking about knowing the Lord and His ways. And so he says, Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. And so you have that theme coming back from the first three chapters of Hosea, kind of being rehashed out. Um, verse 7, they, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. So the rest of Hosea is a lot more like standard prophetic poetry, a message from the Lord against the sins of the people. And in fact, uh, there's a, a really interesting chapter, and go to chapter 8 real quick. We're going to talk about the two bulls again, the cows in Samaria and Bethel. Because God gets mad at those and deals with those. So chapter 8, verse 1, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. You know what a vulture is looking for, right? Dead sure. meat. Yeah, dead meat. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. And here's his response. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. So they claim that they're still God's people. We know God. We know God, even after he says they're destroyed because they don't know me. So verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. Remember, God was supposed to select the kings for his people, and he selected uh, Jeroboam the first, not the second, Jeroboam the first. He selected him, and a prophet even came, remember, after the days of Solomon, you lead God's people and he'll bless you, but he didn't. So there were assassinations, a lot of uh, dynastic fighting, and then it got to the point where they just, whoever was strongest became the king. It was no longer a prophet setting up a king for the Lord's people. So he says here, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria 
shall be broken to pieces. And we know that from the book of Amos. He, he foretells that also. Uh, you've probably heard this one, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Well, Hosea, you can see the entire outline the questionable marriage as an illustration. Second, national pollution and its cause. Then in the second section, there, the national pollution and its punishment where God uh, spells forth their coming punishment. Well, the book turns once more in chapter 11. In chapter 11, um, the book turns and starts dealing with the Lord's love. Now there there are still prophetic utterances in this section, but look in verse 1 of chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The prophets, uh, or the the gospels are going to quote that. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offering to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is another name for Israel. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they refuse to return to me. And so you can see more and more God's love as he recounts it in the past. Remember, the prophet's job is always to point back at what God did and say, how could you turn away from him? And then pointing forward towards more punishment. And it goes on... um, Chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images. So once again, recalling the past, recalling the honor that Israel had. It was, they were God's people, but now they just follow idols. Verse 4, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. So, I mean, he's basically saying, which other God has ever saved you? There's never been another God get into your history and save you. Uh, It was I who knew you in the wilderness and the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. That's a common play on words that they will use throughout the prophets is the idea that God will fill Israel up and then he'll get proud and forget him. And in chapter 14, the last chapter, we'll read uh, all the way to the end from verse 1. Here's the end of the book. Now this one, remember the end of Hosea, or the end of Amos was this promise that God would come back into Israel and be their God. It's the Lord your God that he would restore them. So look at the end of Hosea. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity 
Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, Our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Because remember, they were no longer his children. Then he says, God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So that's the close of the book. A a call for repentance and a promise of restoration. By this point, we're getting used to these books, aren't we? We're getting used to the, the framework and the way they sound. Each one's a little different, but, you know, they've all got kind of the same basic framework. And except for the first three chapters of Hosea, it's a very straightforward, well-written, poetic book, just showing the, the heart of God and how the prophets to deliver his message against the sin of his people. And, and really, the first three <coughs> chapters of the book are, are so odd compared to the rest of the book that there are some commentators who try to get out of them, but I just think they are to show how terrible Israel really was. And so uh, that's Hosea. Any questions or comments on Hosea? I have a question. I have a King James translation. Yes. And it says back in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, it talks about the eagle. And you said the vulture, and there's that makes for a great difference. Right. When did this change out of which writings or translation? Well, eagles aren't eagles aren't as majestic a bird as a lot of people make them out. They they go after dead animals as well. They, matter of fact, they rob yeah. other birds at times. Similar to a vulture, not, not maybe not as much as a vulture just going after dead animals. They do eat dead carcasses. Yeah, they're they're they have very similar behavior. But as as far as whether it's a vulture or an eagle, um, what was that? <laughs> Mox and X. Yeah. If you look at the uh, context, one like a, and then we got that bird is over the house of the Lord. Because they've transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Okay, well, see, I guess my connotation of the eagle is not the same as my thought of the vulture. Right. So immediately, when you know you read yours and I read mine, I thought, you know, there's a world of difference right. between my idea of what an eagle does and what a vulture does. Yeah, sort of like the wings of an eagle. Yep. He said, you know, that they are similar in their habitats. I, I think the imagery is something that, that floats in the air slowly over either a dead body or calamity. Because, you know, when the armies would march out, all of the vultures and eagles and 
birds of prey in the area would kind of get the idea there's about to be something good happening. <laughs> I can handle that. For them. Yeah. And and uh and I just think the main the main focus here is on just whatever is whatever is rotten underneath what it's circling. There's something going on bad on the ground. So Well, I think uh another thing is a lot of these old birds and old animals that we have kind of an idea of what it is um, might even be subspecies that we don't have anymore. Um, there's a chance of that too. In the, the example of the story about Gomer and Hosea, it, it ends with them letting the other happily. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's part of the illustration is that despite this woman's unfaithfulness, Hosea redeems her, buys her back, and cares for her. And at the end of the book of Hosea, what does the Lord do to his unfaithful people Israel? He buys them back, protects them, and promises them a great future. And so um, the book and his family situation are, you know, one's a story of the other. And for Christians, 1 John 1 9 does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Where we fail as Christians, he's faithful. Then we go and ask God's forgiveness, and He cleanses us and makes us whole with Him again. Right. So, if you want to fill in the blank, Hosea's marriage is a demonstration of Israel's sin or unfaithfulness, apostasy. Yeah, there's there's a couple of words you could use there. By the way, Hosea's uh, name means salvation. I've been telling you what their names mean. Now we're going to go to Micah. Micah, um, <clears throat> if you want to ask a question in Hebrew, you put uh, a mem in front of it, and that's your interrogative. So um, if you want to say which day, you would say Michyom. Uh, like you put the M in front of it, it means what day? You know, it's kind of like... Uh, in Spanish, putting K, or uh, French, quoi, or just us, huh? You know, in English. Um, so, Micaiah, or Micah, Micaiah, who's like the Lord? And you think about it, uh, Micaiah, you know, his name. Um, the Lord, with a question in front of it, like, the Lord? Like, who's like the Lord? You know, you can kind of see, like, the way this name works. Who's like the Lord? There's no one like him. So how would you like your name to be like, you know, what's up with the Gators or something like that? Um, that was Micah's name except, you know, with the Lord. So being named um, who is like the Lord, you know, his parents naming him obviously had great estimation of the Lord. But we don't know anything about Micah's um, Parents, they're not mentioned like Hosea's. And some commentaries say that Micah might have been, um, because he's not from the capital city, he's from a place out from there about 20 miles, he might have been a very humble 
a man of humble origins, a commoner. Um, the word of the Lord, you know, came to him, but he wasn't well known in the circles of the inner court like Isaiah. He wasn't, um, you know, a, a man of means, possibly like Amos. Um, he's just this faithful guy living out uh, 20 miles from Jerusalem. And he prophesies around the same time that um, Isaiah is. And he is focused mainly on Judah, whereas Hosea was on the northern kingdom of Israel. So Micah is, has, is going to have a little bit different uh, focus. He's not dealing with the spiritual apostasy of, of the people. That, that's some of it. But it's mainly the lack of justice, the lack of equity. And remember... From last week, Amos dealt a lot with that. And, and if you remember me telling you this, the law of the Lord had specific laws on how to deal with the poor. You could not lose your land permanently in, in the people of God in Israel. If you had to sell it away at the 49th year on the cycle, the year of Jubilee, it came back to you. If you loaned your cloak, someone couldn't keep it overnight as a pledge to bring it back to you. You couldn't over-harvest fields. You know, there were all these little rules set up to stop poverty and to eventually, even if a family fell in hard times, every generation, give them back their stuff. And so the law of the Lord had these safety nets built into it where the people of God would not experience crushing poverty or hunger. Micah's going to focus more on that because if you remember Judah, they had the temple. They did not have as much idolatry, though they did at times, as the northern kingdom, but they're also, they're going to leave the teachings on equity and justice and they're just going to do what everyone else does around them. So the way that Micah is going to... uh, be set up is very standard prophetic book. Micah doesn't have any interesting relationships that are used as sermons. Um, verse 1, chapter 1, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, so northern and southern kingdom. And so he sees this, uh, I guess, vision and hears this pronouncement of coming destruction. And so the book starts off with, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? So it's like this question and answer. And you know, the Samaria had the golden cows. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So you can see the same 
imagery is used, as in the book of Hosea, against the northern kingdom of Israel. He's comparing them to a prostitute spiritually. And verse 8, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals. You know how jackals will do that little bark that sounds like someone crying? And mourning like the ostriches. I've never heard an ostrich. Have any of you? Do they make a similar weird sound? It's really weird. (laughs) It is weird. I won't ask. It's a squawk. Do one for us. Let's hear it. Well, (laughs) if Shirley Ringland was here, she could answer. They used to raise them. Well, too bad we don't have a demonstration. Maybe we could. uh, No, but I wonder if it has to do with them putting their heads down and. Oh, I wonder if that's interesting. And IV says owl. Oh, so we have another. We have another mixed up bird here. So some of them say owl. So, whatever it is, we know that it's just not good. And it says, verse 9, For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So even the northern kingdom's sin is starting to be seen in the southern kingdom. And so, you can see his his opening announcement uh, from the Lord is just to talk about how he's going to destroy the northern kingdom because of their idolatry, they're being unfaithful to him. Now, in chapter 2, uh, he kind of changes. And instead of talking about this, this punishment, it's going to turn more into what we call, and, and I don't like the word because of how it's used today, social justice. Talk about social justice. Sometimes the news will talk about social justice or racial justice. And there are issues <laughs> where, you know, it's good for our society to trend in a more equitable fashion. Um, that's, that should be something we all want is for there to be more. Um, we want more people to have you know a good living. But this is not talking about what we're talking about. When we talk about equity today in our society or income inequality, um, there's nowhere in... I'd say the Constitution that commands that everyone has to be equal. Just remember that in Israel and Judah, it was different. There actually were parts of their law saying, you know, take care of each other. Give people their land back. Debts are not debts forever. Do not charge interest. I mean, there were were laws about that. So if you see somebody complaining on the news and they wheel out some pastor who starts preaching from the Old Testament, just know that you're being manipulated. Now, the, the themes might apply, but uh, you're, you know, it's one of those things where you're not under the same obligation that Judah and Israel were, just so you know. I want to be very clear that a lot of these commands, though it is still wrong to oppress people, these had a specific covenant foundation in the Old Testament law. So just keep that in mind. So um, let's, uh, let's look at... Uh, some of the sins of the people. Um, oh, no, before we do that, I have to uh, have to read one line. Uh, <laughs> in chapter 2, verse 11, he's talking about how spiritually bad the people are, and he says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. You get what he's saying? 
if someone got up and just said, I'm going to lie to you in my sermon and preach about alcohol and drunkenness, all the people would be like, yeah, it's the best sermon I've ever heard. You know, like, he was just talking about that's what these people want to hear at this point. That's the spiritual condition they're in. Um, so, chapter 3, let's look here real quick. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, And I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people. So the, the idea of tearing the skin off of them is, I guess, uh, an illustration of economic suffering and just, just basically making the system so unjust that people are crushed under it, except for the very rich. Um, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So this is imagery of cannibalism. And people have said, was Israel committing cannibalism? No. But what they were doing was so wicked and unjust, they were crushing the poor so much that to shock them, God gives this image of the prophet of, tell them they're eating humans in a pot. They're making human soup. You know, and if you heard they were like, I'm not eating people. Like, economically you are. Because each day you get fatter from siphoning off the wealth of the poor and they get skinnier. You are eating the very flesh from their bones and you're making soup with human beings in it. So it's a very effective and graphic metaphor. You know, the idea that you're so wicked, you're like cannibals. Verse 4, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. So they were false prophets who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So uh, once again, the idea that if you're paying me, I'm going to preach very nice things to you, but if I don't get any money or economic benefit from that person, I don't have to say anything good to them. So the prophets had kind of monetized their ministries. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, because remember the prophet meant seer or visionary, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So, isn't this a really cool uh, I, it almost sounds like Elijah again a little bit where it's like the false prophets have nothing. God doesn't answer them and they don't see anything. And he's not being boastful in himself, but he's saying, but not for me. Because he points back and says, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord. He is very confident that God has given him his word and is resting on him. His spirit is in him. And, and so he also knew that his preaching and his visions were different than those of the false prophets. It was almost like a which God's going to answer by fire. Except this time it was, who's got the word of the Lord? Your guys or me? Like I said, he wasn't being proud. He's just saying, the proof is in the pudding. Come on, let's go. Y'all are 
you know, oppressing people. Those guys won't even preach unless you give them money. Y'all are so wicked, it's like y'all are cannibals. And God speaks through me. So then he, he launches out, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. So that whole idea of making crooked all that is straight, you can just imagine, because we've got it in our, in our system with, legal, with the legal loopholes, where it's this idea that if you, if you just do this and this and fill out this form and this, you can have that. But if you don't fill out that form, which actually costs a lot of money, well, you're going to go to jail. They had made their legal system crooked instead of just and straight. And so, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Who builds Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. The prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So, just as Hosea talked about Samaria being destroyed, now here's Micah talking about eventually Jerusalem will be destroyed because of these sins, these injustices that were allowed to continue. And just the idea that the prophets and the priests and everybody in society had just said, you know, can I profit from it? Can I get paid? Well, then I'll preach. Or I'll do... The judges, can I get paid from this? Well, then I'll render a judgment. So, any questions or comments? Um, Like I said, we're kind of getting we're kind of getting the prophets down. We're kind of seeing how they work, right? Think it's interesting. I I had uh, just pulled up the verse that you just read. And it's used in Jeremiah, quoted in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah's defense. Yeah. As people were coming against him and saying, hey, didn't Micah say this? And used it to save his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, hey, this harsh judgment, it's not a new thing. Yep. They, uh, they knew about, uh, the prophets knew about the ones who wrote before them, and that's always interesting when they bring something like that up or an image up that's in another book. Um, by the way, uh, that verse 11 is not the Lord in the midst of us. No disaster shall come upon us. It's very presumptive, isn't it? It's very, it's, it's, it's almost like, we have ceased to serve the Lord, but we still expect God to serve us. That was the religious mindset at the time. Is God's here. He's our bellhop. He's our cosmic bellboy to fetch the luggage of our problems when we ring the bell and do our little rituals. Do you think they really thought they were serving God? Perhaps. Or they might have just thought they might have thought um, that their rituals were enough. They might have thought their rituals were enough. But God said over and over, your rituals mean nothing. Right.
Yeah, and uh, there we couldn't get into it because we were running short on time, but Hosea has a section about that. Um, if you go read in detail in Hosea, you will find more about um, empty rituals versus what God really wants. So let's, uh, let's turn over to chapter 5. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, this verse, we know the fulfillment, right? We're starting to see something in Micah that we're going to see in a much bigger sense in Isaiah, and that's the idea of messianic prophecy. Micah kind of changes here in the middle, and almost, and you notice he's writing at the same time as Isaiah. You're going to start seeing some of Isaiah. Now here's, I'm going to try to draw it as best I can, and it's difficult to draw this, okay, but... I'm just going to give you an idea. Usually the prophets are like this. God shows them something right here. And he says, I'm going to fulfill it within a certain time. He's warning them. So Amos, we saw it. I'm going to destroy Samaria. Boom. Hosea, we saw it. Jonah, uh, you know, unless they repent, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. It was a very short. But you also have these, and we have them a little bit at the end of every prophetic book, but now in Micah we're having it in the middle, and Isaiah is going to be filled with it. You have these, it's almost like where God says, something else is coming. And so the book might be about the sin of Judah or Israel and how God's going to punish it. And all of a sudden it shoots you way out in the future and we'll start talking about the Messiah. You're going to start seeing this in Isaiah all the time. And you started seeing it now in Micah. We're talking about the sin of Judah. We're talking about how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Bethlehem, from you is coming a ruler. So, Micah's got a little bit of it. We expect that because he's writing and probably knows Isaiah. And just the simple fact that the Lord is, is using them to preach his word, they're going to have a very similar... Um, context in a very similar revelation that they're preaching to Judah at this time. Let's look um, at chapter 7 in the close. Chapter 7.
this is also very Isaiah. Um, you don't have to copy this down. Prophetic subjective writings. And so what this is going to sound like is you're not going to know who's talking here. Someone's going to start talking. And they're going to start sometimes lamenting or talking about their feelings or sometimes rejoicing. It's almost like a psalm. It's almost like a psalm saying, oh, I delight in the Lord. My hope is in Him. But then they'll start talking about, and you, you don't really know what. So verse, verse 1 of chapter 7, just, just read with me. You'll start to see what this is. This is when we, you know, like I've said, up until a certain point, Micah's like everything else. We've studied with the prophets, and now we're getting into more of the Isaiah-like stuff. Okay, ready? Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. Does he sound happy or sad? Very sad. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. For the prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. Y'all know what briars do, right? And the most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. You kind of see how he's writing here. It's almost like he's put himself in this mindset. The Lord's word has been on him so heavily, and now he starts writing about his own feelings. Isaiah's going to do this a lot. And there are times you cannot tell if it's him writing or some type of messianic Mindset. David does this in the Psalms when he talks about his friends betraying him and pulling his beard and his bones being out of joint. And then you hear this quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And you're like, David was writing a psalm with his own emotions and the Spirit of the Lord almost as if he was projecting what the Messiah would be feeling. Well, we got to remember, they're only speaking what the Holy Spirit is speaking for them to speak. Right. That is the only thing they're doing. So now you're getting to a new little angle on the prophetic writings, and these are almost like messianic meditations, where the prophet is almost like he's living in the mind of what the Messiah will experience. They, the Spirit is on them, like Brother Charles says, so much that they get this spiritual perspective on everything. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in Micah. You see it in Isaiah, especially um, the end of Isaiah. And I will say this, whenever you look at how the New Testament talks about Jesus' sufferings, they will oftentimes point to these psalms or, or, psalms or prophecies where you're like, where's Jesus in that? 
and there's not an event talked about, but they recognize the Spirit was in the prophet. And then when the Spirit was here with Jesus, He embodied this. Y'all understand? It's, it's interesting, but you can see how... So let's look in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Is he confessing his sin? Or is he confessing his people's sin? Or is there any, or is there even a boundary in his mind at this point? Is it just kind of all blending together into this, almost this spiritual poetic experience? That's why I called it prophetic subjective writings. We don't know really what exactly he's saying. We just know it's a spiritual mood he's writing about that somehow parallels Israel's history and the Messiah. This is going to be really big in Isaiah. Well, let's, let's close the book out, and it's at the end, uh, chapter 7, verse 18. Closes the book like this. Who is a God like you? You remember his name? What did his name mean? Who's like the Lord? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Beautiful ending. Very similar to Hosea, Amos, the other prophets we've seen. Uh, Very... Very interesting to kind of turn against. Uh, we've talked about the book of Jonah being written by Jonah later to tell the people of Israel, don't think too highly of yourselves. And now, look at this. Yeah, don't think too highly of yourselves. Think more highly of your God. That's the reason He still loves you. It's not you, it's Him. Mm-hmm.